What's up, everybody? Pastor Matt here. Thank you so much for checking into the podcast of Gospel Fellowship PCA. Hey, listen, what if I told you that there is a solid, biblical, doctrinally faithful, reformed church on a beautiful campus just a stone's throw north of Pittsburgh? Yeah, we don't have a Starbucks in the lobby. Sorry about that. We don't have a fog machine. We don't have an American Idol stage with laser lights shooting all around. But we do have the sweetest, kindest people in the world. We sing the Psalms and classic hymns of the faith. We preach the Bible chapter by chapter. We believe the whole thing's true. We love Jesus. We're on a mission to share the good news of the gospel with the world. Would you be interested in a church like that? Well, come check us out, Gospel Fellowship PCA in Valencia, Pennsylvania. Please feel free to visit our website at gospelfellowshippca.org and subscribe to our YouTube channel, Gospel Fellowship Presbyterian Church. All right, thank you so much. Here's today's message. Please turn in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 2. When you found that, please stand. As you're turning, uh, just to give some context, um, I was told to preach from wherever I want, and you're thinking, Sean, why did you choose Revelation? Um, uh, the portion of Revelation that we're reading in is from the letters to the churches. It's not nearly as um, hard to understand or get through uh, as many of the other parts of Revelation, and also they are written for all of God's churches through all time to hear and to know and to see uh, the glory of Christ in it. So as we come to this passage, it's the second a church that was written to, and each of them calls to mind something of the glory of Christ revealed in Revelation chapter 1 and applies that to that church. So let's read about that church together. And to the angel of the church of Smyrna write, the words of the first and the last, who died and came to life, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich, and the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. May God bless the reading and the hearing of his word. Please be seated. The Spirit's call to mankind is for absolute loyalty to our glorious Savior. And that can cause friction when others would make a bid for the absolute loyalty of Christians. Those others can become jealous of the command that Jesus has over Christian lives, and at times that they will respond violently to it and will seek to oppress the church and to command it uh, unbiblically and to threaten it. And this can be very, very scary for Christians. In troubled times, Christians experiencing or even anticipating such frictions can be tempted to fear or to flee, but that is not what Jesus calls us to. He calls all Christians to fearlessly look at what's going on and continue to live faithfully. Now, Smyrna was a pagan city. It was the first city to worship the emperor of Rome as a god. They were a long-term ally of Rome long before Rome had any power in the region. Uh, so, Unlike many others who would seek to maintain their own power for as long as they could, they were already loyal to Rome before Rome was any threat to them. And so loyalty to Rome and faithfulness to the gods of Rome and to Caesar was central to the identity of people in Smyrna. Kind of like 
at least knowing who the Steelers are and the Penguins and rooting for them is central to identity in Western Pennsylvania, uh, the Smyrnans leaned on their relationship with Rome even before Rome was there. And now that they were part of the Roman Empire, they were absolutely loyal to Caesar. And this caused problems for the church. The church at Smyrna was small, it was persecuted, and it was poor. And it was facing martyrdom in the near future. Jesus took time to write to them and to let them know that they were loved and cared for. He didn't console them with false hopes that nothing bad was going to happen, but instead he consoled them with his presence and his power and his abiding love. Now, as we consider our society, we sometimes think that trouble is far off, uh, but these last few years have revealed that trouble is coming closer. Uh, We see what happened in Australia and in what what happened in Canada with people who continued to gather as Christians, uh, even being pursued through the woods by helicopters. And in this coming week, uh, in New York, the legislature is going to be voting on a law that will make the government able to indefinitely and without trial confine anyone they think might be a risk to public health. Um, and Christians gathering to worship when people are afraid uh, is one of those risks. And so we want to be praying for people in New York and aware that the trouble is there, but we want to hear what Christ's words are for us, not to be fearful, uh, but to faithfully follow him. This morning, as we look at the passage, uh, we're going to start by looking at the Lord of the church at Smyrna in verse 8. Then we will be looking at the state of the church at Smyrna in verse 9. In verse 10, we'll see the commands for the church at Smyrna. And then lastly, we'll see the blessings for those who persevere like the Christians at Smyrna. First of all, we're looking at the Lord of the church at Smyrna. Verse 8 says, To the angel of the church in Smyrna write, the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. So Jesus here is calling out a portion of the revelation of him from chapter 1, and he is going to relate that to the Smyrna church in a way that should encourage them. First of all, he tells them that he is the first and the last. Now kids or parents who have dealt with kids, uh, when one takes something away from the other, that first one's argument is, I had it first. There is a priority and there is an authority that comes with being first. And Jesus here is naming that. He is the firstborn of all creation. He is the one who was here before anything else. Uh, He created everything and everything was made through and for him. He is the first and takes first place and that is his glorious position. But he also says that he is the last. So he was the first and he is the last. He has the last word. He is the one who has all judgment. And when you consider together that he is first and last, it points to his continuous power, that he doesn't change, that he doesn't falter, that there's no time when he was not in control of everything. And so this is his first claim, that he has absolute charge over absolutely everything. There's nothing that comes to pass in our lives that he hasn't planned for, that he hasn't chosen for us, for our good and for his glory. He also lets them know that he is the one who died and came to life. As we're going to see in a little bit, there's going to be a threat of martyrdom for those who are at Smyrna. And Jesus is saying he has been there. He has suffered the worst that the world has to throw at people. He has gone through and he has endured it, not because he deserved it, but because of our sins. He suffered death for us. He has gone through anything and worse uh, than he has asked us to go through for him. But it doesn't just end with who died for you, but it says who died and came to life. 
He is life. The Father gave him life and gave him the ability to give life to his people. And so Jesus not only died, but he is also the one who had authority to take his own life back up again. And this God, from beginning to end, the God of life and death, is the one who is watching over this church. Now, the state of this church in Smyrna, in many of the other letters, Jesus writes and says, here's what you're doing wrong. This is what you've got wrong, and here's how you need to fix it. He doesn't say that to the church in Smyrna. He comes straight alongside of them and lets them know that he is caring for them. Verse 9, he says, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. So first of all, he says, I know your tribulation, your suffering, the hardship that you're undergoing. Now, normally when we think of threshing wheat, uh, we think of a flail that hits stuff. But the word tribulation is used, uh, it's based on the Latin word for tribulum. The Romans would take a huge, heavy, spiked piece of wood and drag it over grains. And that is how they would separate the kernels from the grain itself. And that is what the Christians here are undergoing. There's a crushing pressure designed to break them apart. They're undergoing this pressure. Uh, It's called tribulation, but it's not great tribulation. That's reserved uh, for another group, not for believers. But this tribulation, this pressure, this crushing that is on them uh, is very real. It is pressure from their culture to go along with what they're told to do to stop making trouble, uh, to abandon Christ, and to follow the gods of Rome. And this pressure has also led to their poverty. Now, there are two words in the Greek for poverty. Uh, One of those words means uh, you're poor, okay? You don't have the best of anything, uh, but, you know, you have food. You can make it, but you're very poor, okay? No special vacations, no uh, having the best car, but, but you're okay, That is not the word that's used here. The word that's used here is absolute destitution. This is where you don't know where your next meal is coming from. You don't know how you're going to provide for your family. You are destitute and without recourse. And the reason the church in Smyrna was destitute is because of the trade guilds that existed in Roman cities. Now, trade guilds would operate and would control various industries, and in order to have the good jobs, uh, a lot like unions uh, in our country, you would have to be part of the guild. And to be part of the guild, you had to be willing to worship the gods of the guild, and especially to show that you were a good Roman by worshiping the emperor. Now, Christians wouldn't be able to do that, and so they were cut out of the guilds, they were cut out of a lot of the best-paying jobs, and were forced to try and make ends meet in some other way. And so the church at Smyrna was poor. But Jesus adds, parenthetically, but you are rich. They aren't necessarily rich physically. He's not saying you're poor, but you have some savings or something. He's saying that they are rich in the gospel. And when we think of our gospel riches, we often think of the far future, right? We're all going to get to go to heaven. We're going to live uh, in peace with God and with one another. We're going to see the glorious new creation. And that is definitely true. Uh, But he doesn't say you will be rich. He says you are rich. The riches of the gospel aren't just for a future life. They are for now. Eternal life isn't just what happens after life. It's what starts now when a believer begins to follow Jesus. He provides life to them and gives them of the riches of his bounty. Uh, Some examples of this. The fruits of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control, faithfulness. 
These are all gifts that are given to us, things that the world can't know. So even in absolute poverty and destitution, we have the life of the Spirit flowing up in the lives of each of us. He's also given us uh, individual gifts, some hospitality, some encouragement, some uh, leading, some teaching, but everyone has been gifted by God for growing up together into a body. And this unity that we have with other believers in this life is something that the world can never know. They can never know true peace because they don't have peace uh, with the Father. And so they can't have peace with brothers in Christ. And so these are riches that we have now. He says that he also knows, though, the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Now, some of your, script, your copies of the scriptures might make a note and say, or blasphemy. The word in the Greek is unclear whether it's slander or blasphemy. They use the same word for both. And that's really practical for us because when someone is slandering, lying about the salvations of believers, they're also blaspheming and speaking against God. So in English, we have to choose one or the other to use in a sentence, uh, but really it's best to think of it as both here. These people who are lying about Christians and their position before God are also lying about what God has done in salvation and blaspheming uh, the Lord of righteousness. Now these people, Jesus says, say that they are Jews and are not. Now, I mentioned a little bit ago that the trade guilds uh, required worship to the Roman gods. There was a group of people that had an exception that didn't have to do it, and that was the Jews. Because of their slightly or entirely rebellious nature, uh, the Jews were given dispensation to worship the true God. They were required to still pray for and offer sacrifices for the emperor, but they were not required to worship the emperor himself. And Christians, as the true Jews, as the continuation of the Jewish faith, uh, at first were falling under that category. But then the Jews began to persecute Christians and began to call them out before the Romans and say they are not Jews. And that is when the persecution for the Christians really lit up, when their exception, their ability to worship God and pray for the emperor was taken away. And so these Jews, by saying that Christians are not part of the Jewish religion, were actually instead isolating themselves uh, from God and from his salvation. He said that they'd gone so far that they were actually a synagogue of Satan. They had become servants of the adversary, of the accuser, of the enemy of the church, and were doing the work of their father Satan by claiming that they, uh, not God, were in charge of who was saved. Now the Jews were so fervent in their persecution of Christians at Smyrna, but that by the, that by the time of Polycarp, who was one of the early church fathers, they were actually willing to violate the Sabbath to gather the firewood to burn him to death. So this is the type of place that the Smyrnan church was living. They were living in a place that caused them trouble, that caused them to be poor, and where people who should have known better, who should have been embracing them as brothers and following Christ the Messiah together, uh, were lying about them and causing them trouble. And Jesus' comfort here for them is that he knows He's not saying, like, I know, I know, like someone who's been told for the third time to clean up his room. He's saying, I know, like a parent who's holding a small child who just got hurt. They've been there before. They know what's going on, and they intimately care. And that is Jesus' comfort to the church. I know what's going on. I know your hurt. I know your trouble. 
And this isn't head knowledge or pretend, but it's truly deep felt knowledge and care. And that's what Jesus offers to us in our affliction also. He isn't sitting up high in heaven and not caring about his people, but he knows what we're going through. He cares and he intercedes with the Father for us. This is our Savior who loves us and cares for us, having gone through every struggle that we have and succeeded. Having told them he knows and that he cares about them, Jesus moves on in verse 10 to give them a few commands. First of all, he says, Do not fear what you're about to suffer. Then he says, Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you in prison that you may be tested, and for ten days you'll have tribulation. And then he says, Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. So his commands here are do not fear, to behold, and to be faithful. Uh, Now the command to not fear is absolutely, certainly, in no way, should you ever at all be afraid. There is no stronger way in the Greek to negate and to give a negative command than what Jesus uses here. He tells his people that fear should not be a part of them. They should not be afraid, even though they are about to suffer. And what is the basis for not being afraid but that we have union with Christ? Uh, As we read together in our confession of faith, uh, our only hope in life and death is our unity with him, being with him and knowing him. Uh, We saw this same faith, this same fearlessness by Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who, when threatened with being put into the fiery furnace, said, our God is able to take care of us. But even if he chooses not to, we will not bend. We will continue to follow him. And this is the fearlessness that he calls his people to have. Now, some people might try to work up fearlessness or a lack of worry in themselves by burying their heads in the sand and pretending that nothing's going to happen. But that is not what Jesus calls his people to. His next command is behold or look. And sometimes we use look kind of like as a throwaway statement, like, look, I need to talk to you. You're not actually calling someone to look at something. And sometimes it's used that way in Greek too. But here Jesus is calling them specifically, commanding them directly, look. Open your eyes and see what's about to happen. And in their case, he says, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested, and for 10 days you will have tribulation. So first of all, uh, he tells them that the devil is going to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested. We might think so that the people thrown into prison would be tested, but if he had meant that, he would have said, the devil is going to throw some of you into prison so that they would be tested. This testing isn't for just them. It is for the entire church at Smyrna. When trouble comes on Christians, especially persecution for being Christians, there's a great temptation to draw back, to be fearful, to separate ourselves, to let them have their suffering and try and make peace our way, maybe be less outspoken, maybe not tell people about the truth of God. Um, And we don't really see that kind of persecution in this area yet, and Lord willing, we won't. Uh, We can pray that there will be revival and that people's hearts will turn, and that type of trouble will not come here. Uh, But we do see it in tiny ways, like with uh, Facebook banning and other social media issues where people are removed from being able to speak because they've spoken something that is not approved. And the temptation might be to quiet down, to stop saying things, to draw back. But the call from Jesus here is to continue to be faithful, as we'll see in a little bit. But the faithfulness of Christians isn't just in continuing to follow Jesus, 
Jesus has called and gifted us to be a body together. And so when a portion is often suffering, we are called not just to continue on, but also to minister like he does to those people. Jesus does not generally, supernaturally minister to his people anymore, but he uses his body, and that's you and me, who he has gifted to go and do that ministry. And so when we see his people suffering, we shouldn't draw back from them, but we should lean in. Whether that's persecution or whether that's physical suffering, we should be ready to help our brothers and sisters in their times of need. We need to be watching and aware of what's coming and see when our brothers and sisters are suffering and be ready to go. He tells them that this testing will last for 10 days, this tribulation. And I mentioned before that the tribulation was for believers, but great tribulation is separated. Similarly here, we have 10 days of suffering. Um, Math teachers, math majors, you may want to cover your ears for a second. Uh, 10 is not as big as 7. Okay, that's something that's very important to remember here. Uh, 10 and 7 are both words for completion, for fullness in the scriptures, and especially here in Revelation, which is very, very symbolic. 10, however, is limited. It is a human degree of completeness. 7 is divine completeness. And so as you read through the book of Revelation, over and over you see things like three and a half years, or three and a half times, or time, times and a half a time. Three and a half is as far as the world can go in persecuting Christians. And that here is represented by 10. It's, it's complete. It's absolutely as much as they can do to a believer. And so that would continue up to death. But it's not seven. Uh, the Lord tells us not to fear man who can kill the body, but to fear the Lord who can kill both body and soul. The power of man is real. They can do great harm. But it is not the power of God. The completeness of God is beyond what men can do. And so they're going to have absolutely as much as the world can pitch at them, but that does not compare uh, to the judgment or to the goodness of God. Paul says that the struggles and the sorrow and the pain of this present life is not even worthy of comparison with the goodness that is coming to those who follow Jesus. And so Jesus calls his people to be awake and aware and know what is going on, and then he calls them to faithfulness. He says, be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. Now, this is faithful unto, until, or as far as death. Be faithful all the way there. This is not be faithful at the moment of death. Okay, this is a call to following him faithfully, uh, not just if you are told, you know, stop following Jesus or we're going to kill you, but be faithful to Jesus when you're called to come to Sunday worship, when you're called to help uh, with widows, with orphans, with those who are suffering, with loving your wife, loving your brothers and sisters. This call to faithfulness isn't just at the extreme ends of life, but it's a call to daily dying to self and living for God and for those who have, he has put in our life. And so he calls us not to fear, to look and be aware, and also to be faithful. Now, God is very gracious he doesn't leave us with commands and then not follow up with blessings. Uh, I know that I personally, and I assume many of you, if you're told just to do something, you'll probably try to get around to it eventually, right? Uh, but when there's a reason to do it, uh, some kind of pressing need, it's much more likely to happen. And so God is gracious to us in offering us 
blessings uh, for following him faithfully. Here he says he will give the crown of life. And then following up, he says, he who has an ear, let him hear that what the Spirit says to the churches, the one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. This promise for following Jesus is life forever, starting now and enjoyed now, but continuing on through all ages. And these are the blessings uh, that he has given to us, not just uh, growing up into one another, but growing into him, participating in the life that he has in the Father. That's for us too. And so he calls us to be with him as a reward for seeking him with all of our hearts. Now, our society may be trending toward Smyrna. Uh, None of us can foretell what is going to happen in the future uh, as far as what societies are going to do, but we can be absolutely confident of this, that Jesus' call to us is to endure what we're going through faithfully, to look, to see what's going on, not to fear it, but to follow him faithfully, to grow into our brothers and sisters in Christ and to enjoy the blessings that he has had for us. Now, as we come to uh, communion in a little while here, we're going to get a foretaste of some of these blessings uh, and a blessing for this life, the Spirit applying the work of Christ to us. So as we uh, look forward to that, let's take a moment and pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have made us your people, that you have called us who had no interest in you to be yours, to follow you, and have offered us very great rewards for being your people when you did all the work for us. We ask, Heavenly Father, that you would give us the grace to continue seeking after you. We ask that you would give us a willingness to be aware of what's going on around us, but not to fear it, but instead to fear you and to love those that you have put into our lives. We ask these things in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Hi, everybody. My name is Rob and I am a deacon at Gospel Fellowship PCA. I'm also the sound engineer, the camera guy, and the podcast manager. Thank you so much for listening to today's message. Please come visit us in person. Gospel Fellowship is a Bible-believing church just north of Pittsburgh, and you can find us at gospelfellowshippca.org. See you next time.